Well, if you have your Bibles, you can open them to Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. That's where we'll be today. Uh, for some of the Pew Bibles, you can actually find that on page 866. Uh, for others, it's 1013. Uh, it's a fun exploration if you want to look at your Pew Bible and find out uh, and follow along with us today. But uh, we have been going through the letter to the Galatians written by Paul to the church in Galatia. And we've been really asking ourselves this question, what does the gospel teach us? How does the gospel teach us to live? What is the gospel calling us to do in our lives? And we actually opened the book and we started reading and we learned that first and foremost, in order to know what it is that the gospel teaches us and how it teaches us to live, we actually have to know that there is no other gospel. There's no other gospel by which we can live but one gospel, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we actually summed it up in one simple phrase, four words, God's work, not mine. And I keep coming back to that because it's so simple, but it is so true, and we have to be able to live by that and know that if we're going to understand everything else that Paul speaks to us in his gospel. Paul continued in his letter to them speaking about this gospel of grace, a gospel that is not one dictated by approval of man or even approval of God, but that in God's work that he gracefully showered his love upon us and received us into his fold as the children of God. And last week we learned that this gospel calls us to unify under its one teaching, under its one truth. That God worked for us. And there is no other gospel by which we can be saved. By No other truth. And there's no gospel plus. You don't have to believe the gospel and do something else in order to receive it. And as the church of Jesus, we unify under that truth. A gospel of unity. Free to live as God has called us as his people. And so Paul continues in his letter today to the Galatians in chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. It says this, But when Saphos, also known as Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by the hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Saphos before them all, if you... Though a Jew live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, 
We too were found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For I rebuild what I tore down. I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, as we hear these words of Paul to the church in Galatia, as we hear his words to Peter, Lord, may they strike our hearts. May we hear what it is that you are speaking to us today, but more specifically, let us hear what it is that Jesus did for us. What this gospel of grace does for us in our lives and as Jesus calls us deeper still to follow him, to believe in him, to trust in him, to know his work and then to live his work through us. So Lord, let these words today not be my own, but let them be from you. It is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I have to be really honest, as I feel like I try to be every week, that this passage greatly convicted me. Uh, I often find myself doing exactly what it says I ought not to do. I find myself judging other people simply because of what I see and perceive from the outside. More specifically... I pick and choose the people that I would want to spend my time with. Those that I want to be friends with and those that I would rather not be friends with. And I do this far more often than I would care to admit. Like even this past week. This past week I was with a group of people and we were talking and having a conversation and then a name of a certain person came up and very quickly, our conversation devolved into talking about all the reasons that we don't want to be friends with that person, all the reasons we don't want to hang out with them, all the reasons we don't really want to get to know them. We started having this conversation that kept going and going and going. And in the moment, like I didn't feel convicted of what we were doing, I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel bad that they didn't fit into my mold or my idea, and so it was okay to talk about them in this way. Without them even present or in the room, and there I was participating. And then finally, after everybody had kind of left, there was one person, just me and this person talking, and the person looked at me like, I don't, I don't feel good about anything that we just did. I can't believe that we just did that, that we spoke about this person in that way, that we passed judgment on them, that we ridiculed them, that we had come to the conclusion that they're a person that we wouldn't want to hang with or spend time with, that we had all these feelings about who they were. And although I didn't respond to that person in the moment, it, it cut me deep. 
I, I felt the weight of what they were saying. And I realized in that moment that it was a Hebrews 4.12 moment. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And I knew in that moment that the thoughts and intentions of my heart were not Christ. The Holy Spirit was using the moment to convict me that that attitude toward another person was exactly not what Jesus came and died for. It was a hard moment for me to realize, and it's hard even still to stand here and admit that I failed in such a way. But I also know that I can't be the only person that does this. I know that it, to some extent every single one of us has looked at another person and had a thought about why we wouldn't want to befriend them, why we wouldn't want to hang out with them, why we wouldn't want to talk to them. Maybe it's as something as big as their race or their class, their socioeconomic status, or maybe it's as small as their clothes or the way that they have interests in certain hobbies that we wouldn't care for, or maybe even the way they talk. I mean, could you imagine if I came to Griffin and that my opinion of people with a southern draw was to look down and be and see them as inferior? My goodness, I would have a problem. This wouldn't be the congregation that I should be a part of if just because someone spoke different, because they were raised in a different region than I was. And yet, there are people that literally think that way. I know people that when I lived in California, they thought very little of people in the South. Thought they were uneducated and that they couldn't speak right. But this isn't about them. I don't expect them because I was talking to people that didn't know Christ, and yet here I am, just as bad as they are. But each and every one of us in some way has fallen short of this, of this call, of this manner in which that we've thought negatively about another person or another group of people that we might welcome openly in our doors on a Sunday, but we wouldn't be caught dead with them on a Monday. We would say one thing to them in private, but we wouldn't engage with them in public. It's actually interesting. It reminds me, there's a, a new movie out that's actually based off of a book called Where the Crawdads Sing. And it's a fantastic book, and the movie was pretty good. Saw it uh, yesterday. But in, in that book, in the book, there's, it's about a girl who is pretty much ostracized and marginalized from the community in which she lives. She's referred to as the marsh girl. She lives alone in the marsh, and thus marsh girl. But the entire community looks down on her. They see her as poor, as ignorant, as dumb, as if she doesn't know what she's doing and she can't do anything, uneducated. And yet, there's this one boy in town that catches her attention. 
And they start going out, so to speak. But here's the thing about their entire relationship. It's completely private. You see, the thing is, this guy would never actually take her out into town, would never show her off or even let anyone else know that he was in a relationship with her because God forbid anyone knows that the popular boy is dating the ostracized weird Marsh girl. It's one thing for them to have a relationship in private. It's another for it to be exposed in the public sphere. But here's the thing, when we act one way in private and different in public, especially in matters of faith in the gospel, we live, as Paul said, hypocrites. And we damage the glorious name of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that as condemnation. I'm saying that so that even I myself can read this passage and be encouraged that there's more. That Jesus is so much more. And that each of us can live as so much more today. And so let us look at this passage in Galatians chapter 2. And as we look at it, we have to remember that Paul had just gone to Jerusalem and spoken to the people in Jerusalem, to the leaders in Jerusalem, about what it is that, that these group of people were coming to share, this gospel plus. They were saying that the Gentiles had to believe in the gospel and they needed to be circumcised. And everybody in Jerusalem decided, no, 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 that's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus came to say. Jesus simply said, it is the gospel and nothing else. There is no other work that needs to be done in order to become a part of the kingdom of God, in order to follow Jesus. And so Paul had just done that. He had just had that conversation and I even said in the, in, our, in, in the sermon last week, I even preached and said from Acts chapter 10, we saw how Peter went into the home of a Gentile and he ate food that to a Jew would have been considered unclean. And then he worshiped with them and saw how the Holy Spirit fell on them and he declared that God has come to the Gentile sinners. Who are we to deny them what God is doing. That's Peter. He agreed that there is no gospel plus. It is simply gospel. And yet, in our passage today, Paul has to call Peter out because when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was worshiping with them. He knew them. He knew these people. He loved these people. He was in their homes. But when these people from James came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. What an unfortunate name. 
And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him. So that even Barnabas, Barnabas, the one that even came with Paul to Jerusalem to say this is the gospel, Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But I love what Paul says. He says, but when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? It's just so fascinating to me how quickly Peter changed his stance out of fear. I say it's fascinating to me, but here I am, one who changes their stance quickly out of fear all the time, wondering, well, if I hang out with that person, what are people going to think of me? What kind of people are, gonna, are they going to think that I associate with, that I like to hang out with, that I like to spend my time with? If I hang out with that person, are people going to think I'm not cool enough, fascinating enough, good enough? If I hang out with them, are they going to think I'm not Christian enough, that I don't know Jesus enough? But what's fascinating to me even more is that in this moment that Peter, Peter, the one who was eating with the Gentiles and then out of fear withdrew from them, so quickly forgot what it is that Jesus did for him when Jesus picked him to be one of his disciples. You see, Peter was a fisherman by trade. He was not well-educated. He wasn't of means. Certainly would have been seen as a sinner by the religious elite. Would have, stand, would have stood shunned and condemned if he showed up at synagogue if he even attended synagogue. And yet, Jesus, this, this rabbi, who would have picked the choicest of disciples, who would have picked from those that are the most educated, that would have known the Torah forwards and backwards, a rabbi would never have chosen someone from a boat. And yet, Jesus didn't pick the choicest he picked Peter and James and John and Matthew and Bartholomew and Philip and Nathaniel and Judas and Simon. Jesus picked the most unlikely people to surround himself with. He picked the very people that if anyone looked at Jesus and said, and many did, why do you hang out with sinners and tax collectors? This is the exact same thing that Peter had in his life, and yet he ignored it when it came to others. Jesus said, I choose you. No matter what you look like, no matter who you are, no matter what's gone on, I'm picking you. And Peter said, well, I'm exclusive. I only pick the ones that I want to be with because I'm picking them out of fear or I'm picking them because they fit more in line with what I like and what I desire. They look more like me. And here I am, not much different. I was the outcast. I was the antisocial kid. I was the one that 
didn't get invited to people's homes, that didn't have the friends, that didn't go to the parties. I was the one bullied in school. And now here I am, accepted and free in Jesus Christ, and I am no better than Peter. Considering people less than me because of where I now find myself. What happened? How, how in the world did people become less than me because I now know Jesus? They are no less. No single person is less than another in Christ. In fact, when I deny another, I deny Christ. I deny the gospel. I deny the work of Jesus on the cross. And therefore, I deny the opportunity for another coming to know him. And that is not the gospel of Jesus. You see, thank God for Paul. Thank God for Paul for confronting Peter. You see, he first came to Peter in the group in private because it was a private matter. But now Peter has acted publicly. He's denied Christ publicly and he's denied them before before Gentiles. Which means that he had to be called out publicly. He had to be rebuked publicly. He had to be corrected publicly. And so Paul... Paul rebukes Peter. Oh, but I love how he does it. It's not forceful. It's not in a condemning way. It's it's simple. It's a question. I love a good question. A good question, it should challenge us. A good question should make us think critically about what it is that we actually believe. A good question should ultimately transform you for the gospel. And so when Paul asks Peter, if you, Peter, are a Jew, but you act like Gentiles, how is it that you can then ask Gentiles to be like Jews? And in that loving question, You see, we realize everything about how Peter's actions are out of step with the gospel. Peter realizes how his actions are out of step with the gospel. He simply cannot deny that what he had done was hypocritical to the gospel that he knew to be true. Paul didn't accuse him. Paul didn't make him feel bad or shame him for his actions. He just simply asked him a question. Peter made the rest, concluded the rest. In that same way that my friend asked me, what did we just do? How did we just spend our time talking about another person that way? And there I stood convicted. A good friend asks good questions of us when we find ourselves standing in hypocrisy. But I love how Paul continues his letter to the Galatians. See, following this reason of questions that he had asked Peter, he then follows it up with the Galatians. And he says to them that we ourselves are Jews by birth. Not the Galatians, but Paul and Peter. 
and we are not Gentile sinners. And yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Gosh, Paul was the Jew of Jews, right? We've learned so much. We've talked about it so much, how, how Paul was the most zealous of his faith. He loved Judaism, and he was persecuting Christians for what he believed. He was killing them. And yet his encounter with Jesus changed everything. In, in the Reformed tradition, we call what Paul just described here is sola fide, by faith alone. It is in faith alone that we are justified in Christ Jesus. Again, it is that, that, that proclamation, God's work, not mine. It was the work of Jesus that justified me. It is not my own work that justifies me. Let's quick word on justification. Have a deeper understanding. You see, in the Jewish tradition, justification isn't a word they use. They, they use the words clean or pure, purification. Because it is about the work of them having to scrub themselves to be ready before God. But in our faith, in Jesus, we talked about justification. A new word in religious contexts. Because it's a word used in court, not a word used in faith. And yet, I love how J.I. Packer describes this. He says, to justify in the Bible means to declare of a man on trial that he is not liable to any penalty but is entitled to all the privileges due to those who have kept the law. Justifying is the act of a judge pronouncing that opposite sentence to condemnation, that of acquittal and legal immunity. That is to say that we are justified in Christ. That is that regardless of how we have acted, regardless of our sin, condition, Jesus makes us right. We have been acquitted. We have been justified in Christ. There is no work that needs to be done. We do not have to purify ourselves or keep clean. We don't have to eat the right things. We don't have to make sacrifices anymore to atone for sin. It doesn't matter your wrongdoing, whether it was yesterday's, today's, or tomorrow's. Regardless, in Christ Jesus, you are justified, period. There is no continuation of that sentence. You are justified. No, you are justified if. No, you are justified when. But if you believe in Jesus, when you believe in Jesus, at faith, in faith alone, you receive justification in Christ. You don't have to live under the law anymore. That's what Paul continues to talk about in that last part. He concludes in Galatians, but if in an endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Meaning, 
If even in all of that, we still continue to mess up and make mistakes, does that mean Christ is a servant of sin? No, of course not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. It's a realization that the law speaks truth to who we are, the, the mistakes that we've made. But for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And this is, this is the crux of this passage. This is where I want us to land. I have been crucified with Christ it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. It comes down to this, that we would live crucified to Christ. That is, that we would live a cruciform life. A life of self-sacrifice. A life saying that my comforts, my desires, my perceptions don't matter when it comes to the gospel of Jesus. That was Peter's problem is he wasn't willing to live self-sacrificially. That his reputation when the circumcision party arrived that they might judge him for wanting to sit with Gentiles. And in the same way for those that I think might be different from me. That even as wrong as it might be, that I might think are less than me. That doesn't mean that they're any less worthy of the gospel of Jesus and the giving of myself to them. That I can't make a self-sacrifice in order to show them the witness of what it is that the gospel has done for them, it has also done for me. The gospel should be transforming our lives. Not causing us to push people away because we think we're now better than them. The cruciform life is about laying yourself down for the other. To stand with the outcast and the marginalized. To have a meal with the one that you wouldn't normally have a meal with. To stand in step with the gospel instead of out of step with it. And when we stand in step with the gospel in that way, we truly do reveal Jesus to others. Because that's what it's all about, revealing Christ. Everything we do with the gospel is to reveal him to somebody else. To show them Jesus. When nobody else would accept them, he did. When nobody else accepted me, he did. And when nobody else accepted you, he did. And so are we living the example of Jesus Christ? We do so every day when we remember who it was that we were before him, what it is that we, he has done in his death and resurrection, and then when we die to self and open our arms to those that he is going after, those not like us, those that we would consider other. 
Let us look like Christ. Let us live as examples, not in hypocrisy, but in the truth of the gospel that Jesus opened his arms to all. And he's calling us to live the same. In the truth of his gospel. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, you, you have opened your arms to us. God, when nobody wanted us, you wanted us. And so, Lord, just as Peter failed to open his arms as you opened your arms to him, let us not be that way. God, let us acknowledge that we have fallen short of opening our arms to other people in our lives, to those around us, that we have had preconceived notions and judged them before we've even opened our arms to them. Lord, forgive us. But at the same time, God, we are encouraged that in Christ Jesus, all is forgiven. Because even when we mess up, the law no longer condemns. But in Christ Jesus, we have been justified by faith. Amen.